stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders, past and present, as well as recognise that the area where FBI radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. Hey, I'm Danny Stewart and you're listening to All the Best on FBI 94.5. My house is really old and it has a lot of character. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love the bathroom. Mm. I love that it's covered in wood and makes you feel like mm. you're in some Scandinavian sauna. These mm. are my housemates. They're a pretty decent sized courtyard compared to like my other places. Yeah, and mm. the sun it gets in the courtyard mm. in the morning. Yeah, lovely. good morning sun. And our neighbours wind chime. So peaceful. It's We also have beautiful wooden floorboards, which unfortunately make a terrible creaking noise. Um, I like the look of the floorboards and not the sound they make. <laughs> yeah. And not the safetyness of them. I love yes. that. I don't like it when people fall through. <laughs> They're also not the most structurally sound. My housemate's boyfriend recently fell through the floor. The other day I stepped on something and I heard like a little noise. I don't know what it was and I was like, oh, no, not another one. <laughs> and we have a shrine to Britney Spears. And I do love the tribute to Britney Spears. I think it's a reminder of the past yeah, yeah. tenants of the house. <laughs> For those who and came before us. Everyone comments on it. Yeah. yeah. Everyone. Everyone. I have a friend who, every time she comes over, she takes another photo of the mural we have. But of course, home is so much more than just the house we live in. This week on All the Best, what home means to different people. In our first story, Sam shares the story of how she avoided making a place her home. Until a chance meeting made her rethink everything. I'm used to a mic stand, so we used to wake up in the morning and wring out our pillows. That were the kind of stories that my dad told me when I was just a little tacker growing up in Paran, at the Paran swimming pool. Some of you I know have swum there. And I used to wonder what he was talking about. And there were a few other harrowing stories, like waiting for the weekly food truck with half a cabbage and a tin of meat. And I would watch the Channel 9 News in Melbourne lying on the nice warm carpet. And every night of the year, year after year, it was 31 degrees in Darwin. <laughs> I never understood this. I moved on to my my adulthood and I did quite a few things, but one of them was true. It is true. I was in a a folk band and we travelled a lot and played a lot of festivals, you know, the Woodfords and Melbourne festivals and Edinburgh, five Edinburgh festivals. And so we did a bit of dirty comedy thrown in there at times and America and Canada. And, you know, we were even on daily TV with Bert Remember Bert, Denise, and Elle McFeast the week after the Chopper Reed incident. 
and needless to say, there were were a lot of lesbian fans. There were we were three three women. There were was a lot of fan mail and autographs and a few stalkers that I found very unsettling. <laughs> the other two in the band were always in a relationship. Always. It, whether long-term or short-term, there was never a gap. And I would, I would meet lots of lesbians. I think it's worse being in a band, you know. It's, you'd think you would meet, you would meet, you'd have the best opportunity to meet people and connect. And, and as the years went on, of course I did meet lots of fantastic people and connect, but I, I, I hadn't found that, that, that one thing that I thought, that one connection that I felt was what I should find, even though there were lesbians everywhere. <laughs> and stalkers. In 2002, we played the gay games in Sydney. I mean, some of you might not know, there are gay games every four years, like the Olympics. Two years after the Olympics, there's gay games. And they're really great. And we played the Annandale Hotel in Sydney. I, you might know it. Two nights in a row, crowd surfing. There I was, crowd surfing, and then being passed back onto the stage. It was pretty great. <laughs> but I wasn't making that call home at, at night after the shows like the other two to that special person. And it was really getting to me. It was, it was really, you know, what's wrong with me? I, I should be, look at all these people, a bit like this. And the next night, on the Sunday night after these massive, you know, crowd surfing, crazy underwear throwing lesbian gigs. <laughs> we had a gig at the Coogee Bay Hotel, which for some reason I'd never been to in my life. And I've never been since. <laughs> and look, please, no disrespect to any, any member of the organisation but it was, the, it was the Australian Lesbian Medical Association's annual conference, <laughs> which coincided, dovetailed with the gay games. And we were playing the annual, like the conference, you know, the party night. And we, we arrive at the Coogee Bay Hotel and there's the stage, just the carpet. There's no stage, just on the carpet. Okay. And just before we go on stage, the organiser comes up to us and she says, now look girls, I don't want you to hold back. You can be as dirty and filthy as you want tonight because that's a room full of lesbian doctors. <laughs> now we, in all our years, have never been told that we can just go for it. Normally we get subtle messages about, you know, go a bit easy. Watch the language. Maybe don't tell that joke, you know. So we had the best time of our lives. This was the last gig we're expecting to have the best time. And that first set, I think, went for an hour and a half because we could not stop the just making up ridiculous jokes that I'm sure one or two of them were okay, but they were pretty crass. And in the spirit that I took on that night, I foolishly said out to the audience, just before the end of that very long first set, are there any single lesbian doctors in the room? 
I was, you know, I was just, I was only joking. I was just... <laughs> and the set was over and you take your guitar off, you put it on the stand <clears throat> and normally you get off the stage, but it was, not, it was just carpet. <laughs> so before I'd exited the carpet, these two doctors walked up to me and, and one of them was very tall and her name was Dr. Tall. It's true. And another doctor, I don't know her name, and they said, chat, chat, are you serious? Are you, do you want to meet a, a single lesbian doctor? And I thought, well, put my foot in it now. I can't really say no. Inside, I'm terrified. Oh, God, what's going to happen? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I'm in a, you know, band. So, yeah, oh, you bet. That'd be great. <laughs> and the sh they do secret doctor sign language and the short one goes off and the big one like a security guard so I can't <laughs> short one and I'm just in the terrified on the inside I'm the short one in the band as well and I'm just oh. and the others have gone for a drink no support normally we have a sign in the band when you need help it's this <laughs> that's all you had to do and then they would come across the room and say, excuse me, you've got a phone call. And, so, uh, and off you'd go and that's how you were rescued. But no, no, they were gone. They were at the bar. So I think, oh, okay, so it'll, be, it'll be all right. It's okay. You just went a bit far in the set. It, it should be okay. So I can see someone possibly against their will being brought <laughs> through all these other lesbians in, in the direction of the carpet. And all I can see, this is exactly what I could see, is a pair of jeans and thongs. I think, okay, oh, okay. And then I promise you, the next glimpse was only from here to here. That's it, no jeans, just, it was a pink, slightly frilly top, which alarmed me. I thought, oh, this is not my cup of tea. <laughs> and then I get a third glimpse and all I see is from here to here and it's the most beautiful woman I've seen in my life. And I've just, now I'm nervous. I'm like, I'm just in a band, she's a doctor. <laughs> I still haven't gone to the toilet. <laughs> There's no help and I can see she's not thrilled she was probably having a great chat to some other lesbian in the room doctor and so hello you can imagine the com oh hi I'm sorry you were dragged N nice to meet you and what you're a doctor yeah I'm in a band yeah and, and oh did you play music oh you do you used to play the trombone oh I used to play the trombone the, one minute, I think, into that moment, I knew that I was gone. <laughs> Never before had I, I... I just... I was like frozen. Time had stopped. And I didn't know what to do because here came the other two girls who were always in a relationship. And they're saying, come on, Harley, come on, get... Come on, we've, we're so late, that first set. Oh, you know. 
And I was faced with this terror. She has to get off the carpet back and I have to play again. I know her name and that's it. So all I could think to do was look into her eyes like I had never looked at anyone in my life and hope that that might work. And I said, this conversation isn't over yet. <laughs> and of course, in my head, I'm going, that, that was not a good thing to say. And then this side said, you, you weren't blunt enough. And then this one said, you should have got a number. And, and the, the girls in the band are like, literally, put your, here's your guitar, put it on. We're off and running. I still haven't been to the toilet. Um, but, you know, it's a long set. The second set was the worst set of my life. I couldn't look up. I couldn't play. I couldn't speak. I was just going, oh, OMG, you know. <laughs> I couldn't see her. I thought maybe she's left. It was terrible. A terrible 45 minutes. Gig ends, packing up. Lesbians leaving, as they do. I'm thinking, she's, it's, that's it. It's like Cinderella or something. Gone. And then at the back of the room, there she was. And she came up to the carpet. And she said, would you like to have a drink? Oh, fantastic. We had a great few drinks, a great evening. Somewhere during that night, I thought... This is more than one night. Whatever this is, this is more than one night. And then she said to me, I'm flying home tomorrow. I said, oh, yeah, I'm off to Canberra. What about you? Where's home? And she said, I live, off an, I live on an island off the coast of Darwin. And all the memories from my father... He had run the Parap swimming pool when it first opened in the 1950s and 60s. And that's why he was telling me those Darwin stories. He drove out of Darwin in about 62 in a white Valiant with those curved wings, two kids in the back, and he apparently had nearly gone tropo from the heat and the wringing out his pillows. And there was one fan in the entire house. And this is what I grew up with. And here she was. And she lived not only in Darwin, but on an island off the coast of Darwin. I thought, I have to spend every single minute I can before she gets on that plane. So I tried to be really cool, you know, like a folk star. And, oh, let's have, let's hang out. Oh, I'll take you to the airport, you know. And as we're sitting in the airport, they call her plane and she gets on in that tunnel thing, you know, to get on the plane. And as she goes off down that tunnel, I remember thinking... I thought my home was in Melbourne, but my home just got on that plane. And I didn't even have her number. Because there's no mobile reception on Elko Island. She told me, actually, that she lived on palm fronds. She was stirring me a bit. But she was gone, and I thought, that's it. But she had my number, and I had reception. And now, let me think, I was in Canberra, she rang me, and then I had her number. 
and that was in November. In January, on January the 15th, I landed in Darwin. Think about January the 15th. <laughs> there was, uh, this is absolutely true. There was a blackout. No lights, no power, no fans, no aircon, and I was meant to be getting on a little plane to hop out to Elko Island. I thought, this is exactly what my father told me. <laughs> and I walked out onto that tarmac. I was terrified. I felt that. <laughs> I thought, yep, bringing out the pillows. I got on that plane. I did it anyway. And now, this November, it's 15 years later. We have two beautiful boys that we work pretty hard to get. And my father has even visited once. Thank you. That story was read by Sam Harley. You're listening to All the Best on FBI 94.5. I'm Danny Stewart. All the Best is a great place to learn the art of audio storytelling. Never made a story before? No problem. No experience is required. If you'd like to make a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com. Up next, Anne-Marie shares the importance of her grandparents' house, a hub of family, activity, and a home for many. I'd like to share with you my story. Um which started about a decade and a half before I was born. Um, my grandfather, Papa, uh, a proud Territorian and of Jawan descent, married my beautiful Nana, who was born in the Torres Strait Island, and she came to Darwin when she was one. They had 12 children, um, and my grandfather bought an empty block um, at 25 Henry Street, and I'm told the only way in was the dirt track. There was nothing built around it. It was down in a gully and it was flat and then there was another gully. Um, my grandfather stayed on that empty block gathering materials over a few years and he guarded it with a hurricane lamp at night just in case. Um, his sons were all construction and apprentice so they all worked to build this big, big house, big family house. The house was on stilts and it was cemented right into the ground, really far into the ground. So it was very solid. Three bedrooms, wooden floors, huge kitchen, huge lounge. My auntie said they moved in before there was any doors, stairs, flywires, fans. So they used to climb up a ladder into the front door and went through a lot of mosquito coils in the process as well. Dormitory style. Um, so as, as my family grew, my... 12 aunties and uncle and mum, they all married. So 12 became 24. And before 1993, I had 31 first cousins. And um, we would have a family dinner. Come over for dinner. Like that. Just come over for dinner. So there's 60 people for dinner. And um, what I can appreciate now is Papa was always out and about and he'd go down the mall and do his whatever you need to do, bills. And if he saw someone and introduced, how are you? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm visiting. Come down to 25 Henry Street for dinner tonight. So there'd be strangers at these parties. There'd be the neighbour, there'd be the shopkeeper. So 60 people 
were the normal and then there were extras. Even the chief minister or the Lord Mayor every now and then would pop down to have a feed. And food was very important. My nana um, would make wonderful Malaysian influenced dishes, so curries and vermicelli and fried rice. And my grandfather had the most magnificent garden I've ever seen and the soil was black and rich and they were in beds and we weren't allowed to go in there willy-nilly, no. You had to wait and single file. As, and then you're in, look, and then you're back out. That's how we ran the garden. And there were um, fine tomatoes, there was cabbage, there was sweet corn, there were maragusa, which is Chinese cabbage growing all across the, the fence. And um, at the front were big containers of chilies. So there were bird's eye chilies, there were long chilies, there were little fat chilies, and they were all colours. And I can just remember as a kid that people would just come down the gully. So the driveway went like that. So you'd look up at the driveway. They'd come down and they'd be picking chilies. That's all they would do. And my grandfather was there picking the chilies and they were talking and they'd go. Or they'd come down and get um, vegetables, fresh vegetables that were picked straight off the vine and they would go. This produce was on our tables growing up. That's what we had to eat. And my nana um, would be standing there making sure everyone eats. So if there's 60 plus people and you're not eating, she's going to know. Why aren't you eating? Are you unwell? Have some food. Get that, get that girl some food. Have some food. The seafood would be um, prawns and crabs and fish and dugon and turtle from our, our lot that went out fishing. But also people would drop fish off to Nana. She would sew their um, fishnets. So what happened is in the, you just walk past random buckets at the door with a fishnet in it. So Papa would put it up on a hook, six foot in the air, and she would stand there and she would sew the fishnets. People would just drop those off and then they'd come back down with fish. And as kids, we, we had all of 25 Henry Street and the road as our domain and we just played and played. We'd come back in for any formalities. We'd go back. Dinner is cleared. Then the desserts would come out. Now, my nana was a renowned baker in Darwin and she made wedding cakes and she made, birth she made all our cakes for every one of our birthdays, 24 weddings, all the grandkids' birthdays. She made chocolate cakes, she made layered cakes, vanilla cakes, she made lamingtons, butterfly cakes, patty cakes, and we were all witness to it and we could all smell the cakes cooking. It felt like every day they were, Nana was cooking. You couldn't run upstairs, you had to walk upstairs as a cake in the oven. So you go really slow and then you run down the other stairs at the back. And um, the produce and how, how she just 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 make these. My, my favourite cake of hers was a chocolate cake and it was a huge love heart shaped with three tiers and had rich um, chocolate icing and a little Minnie Mouse figurine she got from one of the Chinese emporiums. And that's from America. That's Minnie Mouse on my cake and I'm about 10. So that was great. We, we would eat dessert and um, the gatherings, we were never in each other's way. You can imagine the amount of people and folding up chairs, eskies, and us kids would eat and go and eat and run. And even day events, we'd be playing cricket in the gullies, in the in the front of the adults watching in the day playing cricket. And then I remember we were playing cricket and then people, there was a ruckus and people were jumping off their chairs and knocking the chairs over and the eskies and, and then we'd stop and we'd look. And from out of the gully, a big goanna was coming out of the gully and it was coming up and it was huge and it was going straight towards my papa who was sitting on a folding up chair and all the aunties and nanas and they were gone, they weren't anywhere near this goanna and the goanna 
walked up to my grandfather and he was up. And then my grandfather would stand up and talk to this goanna. And we were just all like that. And he would put his hand in his pocket and he'd pull out a piece of raw meat. And he would hand feed this big gigantic goanna. And then the goanna, he would talk to the goanna. And the goanna would acknowledge and they respected, they respected each other. And he'd turn around, the goanna. And he wide berthed down back into the gully. We would just go crazy. That was just, how could that happen? I've witnessed that that many times, this guana, and I'm sure there were smaller ones. So maybe the guana was teaching their kids, this is home, go and see that old man up there, he'll feed you. My, my nana and papa raised us in 25 Henry Street. We belonged at 25 Henry Street. We were in a dome. We were, we were so lucky. We were so confident, proud people. We used to arrive and Nana and Papa would be under the veranda welcoming us and even as grandkids turning up to stay for eight weeks of the holidays. And when we'd left 25 Henry Street, they'd be down the bottom waving us goodbye and we were all very sad <laughs> even though we were just out in the suburbs. Thank you for listening. That was my story, 25 Henry Street, Stuart Park. Thank you. That story was read by Anne-Marie McLeod. This week's stories were originally told at Spun Stories, a live storytelling event in Darwin, showcasing extraordinary stories from the Northern Territory. Spun also has a podcast. To listen, search Spun Stories on your favourite podcast app. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land, in association with SIN and 3RRR, on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarong lands, and ACCC, on Arunda and Warramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun. Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager and our social media producer is Timothy Nguyen. Lydia Yosefova is our community coordinator and Majura Prakash is our trainee. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. And we're made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can listen back to our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.